It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. I'm really excited about today's guest for a few reasons. One, he lives in Massachusetts. That's where I grew up. It's always nice. It's like that kind of like a nostalgia, but an instant bond when you meet someone that lives either where you've lived or is from where you're from. And he even knows the town that I grew up in, which was really small. And Mike has some really interesting things to talk about. I have a quick question. It actually could be a long answer, Mike, but to me, it could be a very quick question. I meant to ask you before we started recording, I, it looks like you have a Chemex or some sort of coffee device behind you. And I'm just finishing my second cup of cold brew here. Just curious how you feel about coffee or, or is that your coffee? Could be your, your partner's coffee. Like, where do you stand on the coffee spectrum? I feel like this says a lot about someone in addition to where they live. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of pressure in this question now. <laughs> no judgment. So I love the taste of coffee. I especially love the taste of espresso. The caffeine doesn't necessarily work well with me. And so I drank coffee probably starting at age, I don't know, 11 or 12. I mean, really early. And I drank it almost every day through college until I was maybe 24 years old, and I realized the anxiety and the acid reflux were not worth it anymore. And so I very rarely drink coffee today, and that is my husband's, but don't hate me. I do like coffee. Okay, well, my next question is, how do you feel about Dunkin' Donuts? Like, are you a huge Dunkin' Donuts fan? Because that's like a Massachusetts thing, but I didn't get into coffee until like five years ago. So when I was growing up and going to school in in Massachusetts, I could care less about Dunkin' Donuts coffee because I didn't drink it. So I felt like I didn't get that like deep commitment to the brand. How about you? See, you're asking me the hard questions now because you're just trying to make me unlikable here and I love it. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I hate to say I don't love Dunkin' Donuts. You know, I, I just mentioned that like I really like espresso. I feel like espresso is on one end of the spectrum. Dunkin' Donuts and like sugary, you know, French vanilla, whatever is the other end of the spectrum. So, you know, when I drink coffee, which is rare, it's like an affogato at dinner. Like I'm this pretentious snob, right? So it's definitely in high school, I drank a lot of Dunkin' Donuts. I'm not going to say I was above it, but um, I drink it so rarely now that I really need the good stuff. I love that because I'm the same way. I am either an espresso drinker or a cold brew drinker. And I'll drink cold brew all throughout the year. No matter how cold it is outside, I will be happy to have iced coffee or specifically cold brew with ice in it. And I, I don't actually like regular coffee. It's too watered down for me. So I get it. Espresso is just on another level. And I've also heard from regular Dunkin' Donuts clients, customers, that the experience at Dunkin' Donuts is not consistent. I just saw a video on TikTok yesterday of a girl that went to two Dunkin' Donuts, one in a row, because the first Dunkin' Donuts that she went to was really bad. 
And then she went to another one and the coffee tasted really good. And she's like, you cannot expect a consistent experience when you go to Dunkin' Donuts. Unlike, I feel like people don't say that about Starbucks. So I could see how it might not be great for a coffee snob because if you can't count on it, you're wasting your money. So I, I, I'm totally cool with it, Mike. I feel like Dunkin' Donuts is like, you know, a rite of passage when you live in Massachusetts. But aside from that, I think it's totally cool to admit if it's not your thing anymore or if it never was. Uh, Jason's not really into coffee, but he has been to Dunkin' Donuts uh, when he's visited Massachusetts. I think he got, what did you get? We did a video there, Jason. I feel like you got some like tea, like something really bizarre at Dunkin' Donuts when we went. I probably got a fruity drink knowing me. And, and much like you, Mike, I love the aroma. I love the ritual. I love the taste of coffee. However, much like you in my younger years, especially when I wrote my last book, which was uh, fueled by um, coffee and cannabis, basically, I realized that it was not really what my body wanted anymore. You know, it was like, oh, similar to what you shared. Like, if a hyena and Jim Carrey made love, I felt like their child. It was just my body could not, I, I was working and I was getting things done and I was being creative, but the come down, you know, at, at two 30 in the morning and not being able to sleep was kind of not worth the creative exchange. So I've transitioned into matcha tea and I love, you know, now, now I'm you know geeking out on the varietals of ceremonial matcha and, you know, making it myself with the tr traditional Japanese whisk. So I do do caffeine. I do do, but I, I just, and people are like, just drink decaf, Jason. I'm like, it's not the same. It's not the well, same. What's interesting about this, and I was actually thinking of suggesting this to you, Mike, uh, is green tea is really high in L-theanine. And I've heard that when you combine L-theanine with coffee, it actually prevents or reduces jitters and anxiety. Don't quote me on this. I will go research this behind the scenes, but I'm fairly certain this is why some brands add L-theanine to their coffee. And that might explain, Jason, why you feel much better on green tea, like matcha. This is a fascinating conversation. Was one, I actually like green tea quite a bit. And even that, still a little bit of caffeine for me sometimes. But number two, I never, ever do caffeine. And today I was feeling really tired and I just had a chai tea. So I actually am like a total hypocrite here. I just had my black coffee and black tea before this conversation. Hey, we we have no judgment. Otherwise, the show, we would be hypocrites if we judge people here. I mean, not that we, we can't always prevent ourselves from judging, which I feel like is a good segue into some of the things that we're going to talk about here today. Mike, I know so much of your story is about transitions in your life and, you know, becoming someone that perhaps you, you weren't always. And maybe that's loving Dunkin' Donuts to not loving Dunkin' Donuts. Maybe that's something more serious and how even something as simple as your coffee or tea preferences can evoke judgment. And I think part of that is similar to what I started off with is that we tend to feel connected to people that are like us and disconnected from people that aren't like us, which is a very basic human instinct in a way where it feels like a threat if we don't understand someone. And I think one of our greatest work in society right now is to do our best to understand people and, uh, and avoid that 
knee-jerk reaction to like, oh, you're not like me or you're not who I thought you were. I don't like you and I'm going to distance myself from you, which has become a huge challenge for us in our societies versus we might feel those things, but can we work towards not acting on them? That's really something that I've been working on. I, I think we even talked about this in a, a episode we recorded recently where I was saying sometimes my ego flares up. I can feel it. I can think certain things, but it doesn't mean I actually have to verbalize anything or act on them. I can step back even in an instant and make a different decision, which has really served me more than those knee-jerk reactions and saying things that I might regret. It also reminds me of perspectives on gossip, which I think came from Michael Singer, who wrote The Untethered Soul fairly certain is in that book, he was talking about how a lot of us gossip as a way of connecting with others, but it doesn't, it doesn't actually bring us the connection we think it's going to. And I'm especially fascinated with that because gossip feels so good in the moment, you know, but a lot of times it's like I have a hangover, a gossip hangover where I might speak poorly about someone and then later on I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. And it can sometimes be really damaging, not just to yourself, but to your relationships and people will lose trust in you. So I feel like all of these judgments we put on other, whether it's something as basic as like, oh my God, I can't believe Mike doesn't like Dunkin' Donuts. Like, who cares? <laughs> who cares if you don't like something? And I'm I'm curious, Mike, like even though it feels like really silly or maybe surface level, why do you think you hesitate admitting something like Dunkin' Donuts? Is because is it because you're afraid of someone not liking you or judging you? And like I'm curious if you have any further deeper thoughts on that, like when you really reflect on why you hesitate to tell someone about yourself. Oh, for sure. This is a great multi-layered question here. So one, I mean, there's just this Bostonian pride where everybody likes Dunkin' Donuts. But on a deeper level, I think, you know, so much of my work, what I actually do for a job every day is to map people's lives and figure out what they subconsciously do every time they're successful. And so in that, what I'm also understanding is what they're most sensitive to. And that also is going to be where their core wounds are, right? So for me, one of those things is successful. And uh, my, one of my biggest insecurities, biggest fears is that I'm going to come across as pretentious, unrelatable in some way, right? This is a core wound of mine that I'm always afraid of. And so it's funny we bring this in right here and now because this Dunkin' Donuts versus like espresso in Italy, you know, to say, well, oh, I only do caffeine when I'm in Italy, right? Like it's this very, I'm very conscious of the message that that sends and I'm hypersensitive to it. And I think it's really interesting because all of us, you know, life is subjective, right? That's all of us experience things subjectively. We all have these things we're more sensitive to, even when we're babies, right? So some babies are sensitive to freedom. They feel trapped in that swaddle. Some babies are sensitive to connection. They love looking their moms in the eyes. And that doesn't change, you know, go away over time. Like if I am really sensitive to connection, I'm going to feel isolated easily. I'm always going to want to create connections, create community. I'm going to feel purposeful when I create a job around that. I'm going to feel really like shunned and hurt when somebody leaves me out. And we can start to understand why we experience what we do and then what purpose means to us. This is interesting because I, I, I think 
in my perspective, the the sort of traditional approach when it comes to you mentioned the word purpose. That's a hot button word to me because I feel like that's something that gets parroted in so many different contexts of finding your purpose, discovering your purpose, going on your journey, uncovering who you are. And it feels so intimidating and overwhelming sometimes when I think about, and this is very recent too, because I've gone through a lot of changes over the last 18 months of a global pandemic at the time of this recording, as many of us have. I mean, really re-examining what am I doing? What am I passionate about? Am I am I wasting my time? And we did an episode recently on death, Mike, uh, not to get morose, but you know, to really contemplate our own mortality and the fact that we literally don't know how much time we have left or how we're going to check out of this place. But you talked about purpose and and you assisting people with you know these subconscious clues, these markers of success and their sensitivities, which I really want to dig into your approach on this, but. To hone in on purpose for a second, it feels like this intimidating thing we've got to figure out. You know, I've got these whiteboards in my office and I've been doing exercises over the past few months. I'm like, you know, what's my purpose? And here are my passions and here are my talents. And this is what I cared about it as, as a little kid. And this is what I cared about now. And it, it actually hasn't gotten me any closer to answering that question. So what is your perspective on purpose? And also some of these narratives that may not be so beneficial around it. Oh, you are speaking my language. I love this question. So um, to be perfectly frank, I think 99% of what we talk about as purpose is total bullshit and is shame inducing. And um, I want to talk about why that is. So the thing is when people say like, they'll say this to me all the time, like, oh, Mike, I figured out my purpose. I'm meant to be a life coach. I'm meant to be a writer. And that is awesome. I'm so happy for you. If it feels right, who the hell am I to say no? But here's the thing. If we can achieve something, that implies we can also fail it. And that doesn't make sense. How could you fail your purpose? And furthermore, if you can achieve something, that implies you didn't have it at a certain point. So did you just not have a purpose as a baby? That doesn't make sense. How could you achieve a purpose? And do you not have a purpose like in your relationship, during sex, with your friends, with your trauma, with literally anywhere that's not a job? Of course you do. Like the way we talk about purpose is incredibly influenced by our capitalistic culture, right? It's this idea that like I have a job and I've got to achieve and achieve and achieve. And what happens when you get divorced or you retire or you get fired or you get laid off? Because I see this every day in my work. People are like, oh my God, I had a purpose. Now it's gone. That doesn't make sense. I want to change this narrative once and for all. I think of purpose because I'm drinking um, water. I'm always drinking water out of mason jars. I think of purpose like this. I drink water out of mason jars because two things. I like drinking a lot of water and I am incredibly lazy. So I am don't want to go fill up my water all day long. I just want my big water next to me all day. But if I went over to a friend's house and they had a tiny little cup and they wanted to give me water, sure, I would take that. I want the water because it's never been about the container. It's about the water. If I crack my mason jar, I can pour it into another cup because I want the water. Now, in life, when someone comes to me and says, hey, Mike, I retired. I don't have a purpose. No, no, no. Your container may be changed, but it's the same goddamn essence. We're just going to pour water from one to the next. Why you are attracted to this person, why this hurt you, why you love this job, why this didn't work out for you is all the same reason over and over and over again. And it's based on what you're sensitive to. See, 
if we want to know why, which is, by the way, what the word purpose means, then we want to know the reason for something. We want to know why we experienced it. And that means we're talking about our subjectivity or our sensitivities, like what we're sensing. Now, when I was a baby, I didn't accomplish very much, I'll be honest with you. But what I did have is sensitivities, right? I was sensitive to things. I experienced life uniquely. You know, some babies, like I said, sensitive to freedom, some to connection, some to music, and they can hear notes that I can't hear. Because when I'm sensitive to something, I literally sense more. I see, taste, touch, smell, hear more. It brings me more life. Yeah, I'm going to see nuances and be more of an expert there, but I'm also going to have more trauma there because I feel it deeper, right? I sense more. I'm also going to have more desires around this very issue. And as I grow up in life, what makes me feel purposeful? I'll tell you right now, my sensitivities are aligned, zany, free, unmistakable, successful, and vulnerable. And we're going to see them come out a thousand times in this conversation, I promise you. I'm going to be weird and zany. I'm going to be deeply vulnerable and share stuff. I can't help it. When I'm most my most authentic, that's who I am. Because you never have to try to be yourself. If you're trying, it means you're being somebody else, right? Like when I'm hanging out with a best friend and I'm just having coffee and shooting the shit or tea, because we all know I don't drink coffee, then I'm just being my most authentic self, right? And I'm just speaking. And I don't remember to try. I don't remember like, shit, did I say the right thing? Or let me be impressive here. I just be me. And miraculously, those are moments where I have the closest relationships or with my husband or during sex or any time that's intuitive. And then I have the other moments where I'm kind of like, did I say the right thing? Did I do the right thing? Right. And anytime I'm in that awkward phase, that doesn't feel very purposeful to me. So purpose isn't this thing I achieve. It's a subjective feeling. And it's not that being a life coach is my purpose. It's why being a life coach feels purposeful. And that's going to be the same reason why this sex felt good, why this conversation is really intuitive, why that relationship ended, why is what purpose means. And so that's my short, hopefully short way of explaining it. It's interesting because I don't think I've heard anyone describe purpose that way before, Mike. So thank you. I'm a huge why person. It's my favorite question. It's it's one of my favorite words. I could ask why all day long, like a little kid. And part of what you were saying here was, was having me reflect on, A, for me specifically, people tried to, for lack of a better word in this case, bully me out of asking why shame me out of it. I mean, so many people in my life have been annoyed with me asking why. And it wasn't until a few years ago when I did this assessment um, called Four Tendencies by Gretchen Rubin. And she has this framework. uh, One of the results that you can get is called The Questioner. And of course, that was me. And when I read that book, I thought, oh, I can finally understand why I ask why so much, but also better articulate that to others and stand up for myself. Because previously, because so many people got annoyed with me asking those questions, which is unfortunate, because it's like the amount of times that we bully, shame, or even gaslight people around their core essence, as you're describing, is so disturbing. And that also leads me to something I'm sure that you you talk about or reflect on often, Mike, but correct me if I'm wrong, that sensitivity is often groomed out of us or or conditioned out of us is a better word for that. It's it's we're encouraged in this culture 
to be less sensitive, to develop thick skin, which I think is some of the worst advice we can give each other as human beings. Jason has talked a lot about how this has impacted his masculinity. So I'm curious how that's influenced you, Mike. But certainly as a woman, too, it's we're, we're looked at poorly. And it's often associated with a feminine trait, like don't be a pussy. And what does that generally mean? Don't be so sensitive. Don't be a wuss. Don't be this. Don't, and like a lot of those phrases are related to sensitivity. And I spend a long time feeling shame for my sensitivity. It's one of the reasons I don't run uh, my YouTube channels quite as much. Somebody may be watching this on YouTube, but I, I've had multiple channels over the years. And it became almost um, traumatic for me, the amount of cruel things people would say to me on social media or YouTube specifically. And when I would verbalize it, the overwhelming advice would be, well, just don't be so sensitive. You can't let it bother you. Develop a thick skin. And so for years, I tried. And I realized that's not, to your point, Mike, my core essence. My core essence is to be very sensitive. And I was thinking the other day, wow, like how much of myself have I lost by trying not to be sensitive? And is that the reason I often feel out of tune with who I am and what I want? Oh, there's so many things I can say to this. So first of all, just to clear the air for anyone who's ever been told you're too sensitive, which is everyone, and I'm sure everybody listening here, for we are all sensitive. Sensitive literally means alive. The only things that aren't sensitive are dead. Like we sense, we are alive. The more sensitive you are, the more alive you are. That just makes sense, right? We're picking up nuances and feeling and sensing things that other people can't see. Now, we live in a world that has been trying to get us to numb out, right? We live in a world that is overwhelming, quite frankly. Sometimes I do want to disassociate and numb out. And so the there's this movement between being sensitive and alive and experiencing more of life or being so overwhelmed that we are numbing out and basically being more dead. And so to anybody out there who's ever been told you're too sensitive, what I want you to tell me, because I have been told this a million times in my life, number one, two, every one of us is sensitive, but we're sensitive to different things. So I am sure, Whitney, what you were picking up or reading in these YouTube comments hit a core nerve for you, right? It hit something. We're all sensitive to something. Some people could say something to me that I'm not sensitive to, and it's like water off a duck's back. Who cares? Like, that's not. And then there's something else that will just get under my skin and will really, you know, hit it. If I feel overly exposed and vulnerable, if I feel unsuccessful, right? According to those core sensitivities that we've talked about. But if someone says to you, you know, they say it to me all the time, hey, Mike, you are too sensitive. You're too emotional. You're too intense. You're too whatever, right? How many of us have been told this? What I've learned is what they're really saying, to go back to my mason jar, is you are too much or you're too sensitive for me to handle in this container. They're, not, they're just telling me it's the wrong container, right? Because if I had a big pot of water and I try to pour it into a little cup and it spilled all over the floor... I wouldn't shame the water for being too much. That doesn't make sense. I would get a bigger pot, right? I would get a bigger container. So whenever someone says that to me these days, I'm like, you know what? Thank you. I totally get it. You don't have the emotional capacity to handle me. That's fine. It's not the right relationship for me. Let me go find the space that's right for me. The essence isn't wrong. The container is, right? And when we begin to understand that, we start realizing, oh, I'm right as I am. Every desire, every turn on, every fetish, every emotion, every whatever is right. And 
I just need to find the containers that fit me. And when I do, it's just as intuitive as having coffee with a best friend or tea. Okay. So as we get to this essence, this word core essence, who we truly are, we talk so much on this podcast about the decades of conditioning, the decades of parents, teachers, religion, culture, telling us what we ought to be to fit in. And they inject this fear of social ostracization, right? If you don't quote fit in, there's this primal fear, as you know, we know of not too long ago, where we were living in small tribal societies, that if you did something that was ghastly to the code of the tribe, you'd be cast out into the wilderness and that meant death. Of course, we live in a societal framework where that's not happening. Then I'd be like, go to the woods and find some food. You're going to die. Like Maybe that's happening somewhere, but in most modern society, that's not really a thing anymore. In your process personally, Mike, for your life and also what you facilitate and help with others, but I really want to dig into your, your life story a little more. You've obviously, like all of us, been conditioned to this subjugation, this patterning, be like everyone else, you're not enough the way you are, or more, more clearly, I think in certain contexts of career, this idea that we have to follow someone else's path or look at them as an avatar and follow their business plan, follow their business model. So I feel like this kind of conditioning is just everywhere in life. How have you looked at that conditioning what has been your process of shedding it to get more, and obviously this is an ongoing process, to get to the core essence of who you are? What have been those challenges? What's your process? How the fuck do we even approach this? I think this is a, a, such a big question that we can go in a thousand different directions with. But, you know, subjectivity work is inherently deconditioning work, right? Like there's no way we are loaded up. Our essence is still in there. We're just loaded up with conditioning on conditioning. And we've got to take that off. And for me, it's really hard to know who we aren't if we don't know who we are. Because once I know who I am, I'm kind of like, oh, vulnerable and successful. That's me. This isn't that. Let me pull this out. Let me pull this out. And it becomes a lot easier to do that deconditioning. Now, I haven't been doing this work forever, and I've had a lot of conditioning in my life. So to be perfectly honest with you, uh, if I go way back in my story, you know, early on in life, I was pretty successful. Now, yes, that's one of my sensitivities. I'm pretty sensitive to success, but I didn't understand this. And so at 22, I started a pretty successful PR agency. I worked with billionaires. I worked with a lot of you know famous people that you might know. We talked about a little bit before. And it was great. I liked my job. I was working crazy, crazy hours. And I was still drinking coffee. So certainly a lot of acid reflux. And one day in my mid-20s, I woke up and I was vomiting blood. And that was pretty scary, as you can imagine, because you don't often wake up vomiting blood, but I couldn't eat anything. I was vomiting blood every day for about two months straight. And so I was in and out of doctor's offices, and I was hospitalized a few times at the emergency room just to get fluids because I was losing fluids, vomiting blood. Um, I went into work one day, and I realized I had to go to the bathroom. So I ran to the toilet. I didn't make it in time, and I shit my pants at work. I had an accident and I could not control my bowels. Um, it was a horrifying moment. I could talk a lot more graphically about it, but basically I had to have people help me get a change of clothes and get out the back door and get a cab and go home. And so I was really scared because I had what I was supposed to have in life, right? Like I worked hard. I was smart. I had all the success I was supposed to have at like 25 years old. I made a lot of money. And I thought I was going to die tomorrow. And I was kind of like, this isn't what life is supposed to be, right? Like at 25, I'm decently healthy. I should not be on the verge of dying. 
And so I started going to, you know, pretty much every pathway. I started really unpacking, like you said, deconditioning stuff and saying, hey, wait a minute. Do I believe that Western medicine is the only thing? Let me try Eastern medicine. Let me try acupuncture or herbs. You know, do I believe that, um, you know, this job is the height of my purpose or could there be something else? And so I got in this phase of questioning, right? Like you, Whitney, I became this questioner. And in the midst of this, started doing some radical things, right? Like I was writing handwritten letters to every member of my family, telling them everything I've never said out loud. I was like really like crazy stuff. Cause I was like, if I'm going to die, like I need to just put it out there. Like I can't hold anything down. And while all this was going on, I had two roommates at the time. One of them was my older sister's friend and she wasn't around much. And the other was a guy I knew from college that I was kind of friendly with. And he was on a pharmacy residency and just by chance because of his schedule and because he would live there, he was home during the day. So he took care of me. He knew the medical system. He would drive me to appointments. And it was about two months into this process of him driving me to appointments, sometimes, you know, cooking me dinner, sometimes sitting with me on the couch when I was in pain, that I realized I thought I had feelings for him. And it was a little bit weird for me because at the time, at least, I had never, to my conscious knowledge, been interested in a man. I had never been with a man. I kind of thought like, okay, going to roll with this. I don't really know what to think. This is probably just like, you know, to get you in my mentality at the time, I was thinking like, shit, is this just like a human within proximity and I'm scared I'm going to die? Like, I don't know what this is. And so I kind of thought, uh, let me just brush this under the rug. And I probably would have had it been any other time in my life, but I was afraid I was going to die. And so I said, you know, I I just got to say something like, I could die tomorrow. Maybe he wants to punch me in the face, but I'm not going to die being afraid to say what's true. And so I one day said to him, Garrett, his name's Garrett. I said, Garrett, this doesn't feel sexual. doesn't even feel romantic, but I feel something. And I I don't know how to describe it. And I'm just, I don't know how how are you going to react, but I have to tell you. And he thankfully is the most thoughtful person in the world. So he said, okay, I, I don't know how I feel, but let me think about that. And you know, I'm condensing months into a few minutes here, but emails and lots of conversations later, we decided to try to make a relationship work. And so we still dated women while we tried to figure it out. We were not physical. Um, People ask me all the time, like, oh my God, you had all these feelings for him. It must've felt so natural the first time you kissed. No, I've never felt facial hair before while kissing someone. It felt completely unnatural. Like this was not something that I enjoyed. And so I'm sitting here and trying to figure this out. And long story short, it took us about two years of really navigating to figure out a relationship and figure how to make this work. And I can actually pinpoint for you the moment I knew I was in love with him because it's a, it's a good story. So I'll share it. I was just getting better. So this was maybe six months after I got sick. I was just getting better. And it was around Christmas time. And I went to a Christmas party. Thankfully, someone here is from Boston, so they know, in the North End. So it's a section of the city that's really bad for parking. It's all cobblestone streets. And it is a snowstorm this night. And Garrett has to work until about midnight at the hospital because he's still on residency. And so I go to this party. And I'm just happy to be like out of my house and not afraid I'm going to vomit or shit my pants. And so I'm at this party. And I look over at about 1 a.m. when I was just getting ready to leave. And Garrett is sitting in the corner in his scrubs. I was like, what are you doing here? Like, you worked until midnight. Why are you at this party? He said, well, you're right. I did work about 12 hours today, and I'm exhausted, and I look like crap. 
And I went to get into my car and I realized that if I drove all the way home, you would take public transportation home and it would be a half hour later and I would probably be asleep because I'm so tired. And I want something for myself today. And so I drove across the entire city in a snowstorm and I fought to find parking on these cobblestone streets to just sit in the corner and have one drink and watch you tell stories because I could watch you tell stories all night. And then I get to drive you home and see you. And I thought, well, shit, now I have to marry this man. I don't know if it's going to work out, but like, this is someone I have to marry. And so that was the exact, I mean, we didn't get engaged for another four and a half years, but that was the moment I knew I had to marry him. That's like out of a Lifetime movie. Literally. It was like, (laughs) as you were saying it, Whitney, the scene was playing out so vividly in my mind. So vividly. Wow, that is such a great story. And especially because I I like picked some restaurant in the North End that I've been to and like set the whole, the whole stage in my head because I know what it's like there. <laughs> wow, I feel like that like should be a Lifetime movie, you know? So it's funny you say this because I, I mentioned earlier that I haven't ever publicly talked about this, but I will today. There is a musical being written about us. So there's there's a lot more like to our story that I guess we'll get into of how we kind of publicly came out to millions of people. But anyway, years ago, like seven years ago, somebody said, can we have the rights to your story? We'd like to produce something. And like, I think these were at the time college kids. Like we did not take this very seriously. We're kind of like, yeah, whatever, you know, we'll sign a contract. And anyway, apparently over the last seven years, it's been worked on. COVID really helped these people have free time work on it. And I heard the first song and it's really, really beautiful. And so the script will be finished in the fall. And then they're workshopping it at a college. They have the agreement in the fall. And I guess by next spring, they're looking to producers and they're going to be doing an off-Broadway show of this. And so um, it's very strange. Yeah. I'm going to manifest coming to see it because I hope it plays in Boston while I'm there. And that is so cool. I can't wait to hear the music. I mean, that's actually much better than a Lifetime movie. (laughs) A musical. Wow. Uh, I'm curious, just to backtrack a little, did you ever, well, I I imagine you did get to the bottom of of what was causing, like, what was the sickness? What were, if you don't mind sharing, like, what was causing you to vomit blood for so long? So I, I don't know for sure. I've been diagnosed with a few things. So I'm diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disorder. So I do have like ulcerative colitis. And um, I have had flare-ups since then. So I am very cautious with my diet. I don't do dairy or gluten. I don't drink very often. I was, at the time, also based on my pancreatic enzyme levels, diagnosed with severe pancreatitis, which is something that's very rare for someone at my age at that point. And I had some infections in major organs. And so I've been diagnosed with a few different things. It's chalked up a lot of times to something autoimmune And, um, but I will say it really made me question my career. Not surprisingly, at this moment, I decided to leave my job. And, you know, when I do things, I go all out, if you can't tell. And so I left, I was navigating my first same-sex relationship, trying to heal myself. I went to two years of herbalism school and a year of nutrition school full-time. Well, I was working full-time because, oh, just wait, I decided to give a year's notice at work. Never, ever recommend you do that, anybody listening. But I was an owner of this company, you know, it was a real job, and I felt like I have to do this. So it was the most hellish year of my life. 
And I finished that and I kind of thought, well, I'm just going to be like this herbalist to Boston's tech entrepreneurs. I know all these people, like why not? I'll be their herbalist, right? And I did that for a little bit. And honestly, I didn't really love it. I wasn't making a lot of money. And I thought, well, shit, I didn't just leave this great job for nothing. Like figure this out, Mike. And I thought, okay, I was really successful at a young age. I have a lot of stories. I realized it wasn't what was cracked up to be. Maybe I can be a writer. I'd always been a writer. Let me just start a blog, see where it goes. So I started a blog. And about three months later, someone reached out to me and said, I've been following your writing. Can I just give you a book deal? And so it was, yeah, right, right. Like I, and so I'm sitting here thinking like, this doesn't happen to people, right? Like this has got to be my purpose, right? The universe is just handing me something. This has got to be my purpose. Someone's just handing me a book deal. And she even said, you've got enough in your blog post. Why don't we just repurpose those? So it was really easy. I had two months to turn this manuscript, but really easy to turn this into a book. So I, I wrote a book. I said, if you're going to pay me, sure, this will be my summer income. I'm happy with it. And so while this was going on, you know, she was a queer um, publisher and well, the editor was queer and she wanted me to talk about my relationship in the book. And I thought, okay, you know, my family knew, um, close friends knew, but I hadn't told wider networks of people. This is something we were still just figuring out and navigating at this point. And so I said, okay. Um, so I, I put into the book, turned to the manuscript and then thought, oh shit, like I better tell people about this. You know, before they find out on the shelves of Barnes and Noble, like I have to tell people in my life, they're going to be really upset. And so I decided being a writer, the best thing I can do is write a blog post because I've got this blog already and people can just read it, talk shit behind my back. I don't have to deal with any of their emotional freakouts, and then they can come to me. It is so much better for me than telling people one-on-one. So I thought, okay, this is going to be great. And so I write a blog post. And at the time I was writing for a few national publications and one of them saw it and thought, you know, Mike, like, can we just republish this? I, we just want you to add a few more details. And I was kind of like, well, you know, it's already out there. What difference is it going to make at this point? So I said, sure, you can republish it. I went to bed that night. And when I woke up the next morning, 100,000 people had shared it. So this was overwhelming in case you can't have guessed. I mean, the time that I woke up to literally millions of people talking about my sex life asking me to defend a sexuality that quite frankly, I wasn't clear about. I mean, I woke up to phone calls from NPR and Yahoo News and Huffington Post wanting to talk to me about the story. And I froze. I didn't know what to do. I mean, I had people accusing me of things. I had thousands of emails in my inbox. I was being invited to speak at pride events all over. And I was like, I am not qualified for this. I don't even know what to do. It was a really surreal moment. This is when, you know, somebody wanted the rights to create a musical. So that happened as well. And it was really, you know, talk about purpose. This was a moment in my life where I was just like, I am a mess. You know, I have this book deal and millions of people are talking about me. I have zero business model. I'm making zero dollars other than this advance, right? I'm not an herbalist. I'm not in branding or public relations anymore. I have no idea what I want to do with my life, but all of these people are looking at me and asking to interview me. And any interview I take, they only want to talk about my relationship. Nobody cares about me otherwise. I am only Garrett's boyfriend at this point. And it was this really interesting moment where like, I could have doubled down and went, I mean, I was offered book deals. I could have written about my relationship till the day I die, right? That could have been my entire career. 
And I had to stop and be like, this isn't all of me and I'm not interested. And I'm refusing to let myself be objectified, you know, least of which by myself. And so I decided to figure this out. Like I got to figure out this purpose thing, right? Because I'm a mess. And this was, you know, you don't just fall into purpose work. This is uh, how I got here. I got obsessed with life purpose and I started reading every book, Jason, just like you, every book, every webinar. I am not kidding you. You name it. I have read it. Trust me. And so many times in my life, I have heard by the end of these 60 minutes, you will know your purpose, right? So many, right, right. We are all of us, right? I'm sure listeners feel the exact same way. And so you listen to enough things. I was laughing when you were saying it, Jason, because they all say, you know, figure out your skills, figure out your passions, figure out what the world needs, find that middle point. So I'm kind of like, okay, okay. What do these things have in common? Like branding and public relations and herbalism and same-sex relationship and getting sick and viral article. Like I have no idea what these things have in common. And so I'm really, really thinking. I'm just like you. I've got my stickies, my whiteboard, and I'm really trying to figure this out. And I realized, oh my God, it is so obvious. It's been in front of me the whole time. I'm meant to create a blogging course. And this blogging course is going to help people get book deals, but it's going to be deep and spiritual. It's going to be helping people find their voice and understand their wounds and heal themselves. Yes, I know this. So I, this is the end of a year where I basically haven't been working. I mean, I got a little bit of money off herbalism. I got a book advance, but otherwise I didn't make any income. So I am broke at this point. I'm like, you know what? It doesn't matter. I know my purpose. I am about to take the fuck off. This is exciting. People are following me already. I've got this. And so I get that fancy lighting kit and the microphone. I've got a business partner, a web designer, like you name it. Like I've got all this shit. And I put it out into the world. I've spent thousands of dollars on this thing. I know it will take off. I put it out into the world. I think five people bought it. It was a colossal failure. And I just thought I am done. I am so fucking done because, you know, I really went for it. Like I went for, I I put myself into the world. I was really vulnerable and the world is just telling me it does not want what I have to offer. And I'm done. I, that's it. I'll go back to public relations. At least I made money there. Like, why am I putting myself through hell and not making money? Now, I don't know if I have a job at my own company, but I can beg them to take me back because at least that's something. And so I decided to do what what changed my life radically, although at the time I didn't know it. Now, one of my sensitivities is successful. So you'll all understand why this changed my life, but I didn't know this at the time. I decided to host a failure celebration. And the thinking around that was like, hey, I failed pretty publicly, but at least I did something that got me to fail. Like at least I took a risk. That's going to be worth something in this world, right? Failure implies risk. And so I said, all right, for this failure celebration, I'm going to celebrate my big failure. I'm going to go into spiritual groups I was a part of this year, and I'm going to offer them the one thing I'm still confident in, which is branding. I can map their brand. I can, I've been doing this forever. I can tell them and make them successful, and then I am out. And so I offered this for free. I think I did like nine hours straight of this one day. I worked with six different people. I literally stopped sessions to pee. But I was like, I am going for it if this is my last day. And I did this. And I'm used to working with, you know, healthcare politicians and tech billionaires. And these people were like artists and writers and psychics and healers and all types of cool people. So I'm doing these sessions. And at the end of this day, you know, each of them said some variation to me of like, 
Mike, this isn't my brand at all. This has nothing to do with my business. This is my whole life purpose. And I'm sitting there like, what the fuck are you talking about? I, I don't know what you mean. Like, I don't know what to say about this. This is your business brand. They're like, but Mike, I'm a solopreneur. This, my brand is me. You've described who I am and why I have this trauma. And so I'm sitting here like, I don't understand what you're talking about. So what am I going to do at this point? I do it on myself. So I spent two hours doing with them the exact mapping that I did myself, or that I did in them. And I came out with six words. And those words are aligned, zany, free, unmistakable, successful, and vulnerable. And there was this moment of just like this click because I started realizing, oh my God, I know why I'm attracted to Garrett. I've never been that safe to be vulnerable before, right? I have never felt like I literally can't make a mistake. I am unmistakable. There's nothing I can do wrong. And oh my God, I get in public relations, how I help people to align their messaging to be successful, but I couldn't be vulnerable. So I get why I was successful there, but not fulfilled. And it was just like this moment of, I can see past relationships, why they failed. I can, like It was this kind of light bulb moment going off. So I don't know what to do with this, but I've got it. And I checked my email and one of the women I worked with that day said, hey, Mike, my friend wants to buy this from you. Like, do you sell it? What do you call it? Tell me. And I said, I sell it if she's going to pay me because I'm making nothing right now. So I said, um, sure. I think I charged like 200 bucks for this. It wasn't very much money. I said, uh, how about I call it sacred branding? Because, you know, it's branding, but you're telling me it's life purpose. It's sacred. Let's call it that. The next day I had one client. She told her few friends, and I, so I made a rule in my mind that as long as I have a client the next day, or at least within the week, I will not leave my job. And that was now eight years ago. So I have had that since. I never ended up leaving. And obviously, the work has changed a lot over those years, and I've come to really understand it more. But, you know, basically, when we understand what we are most sensitive to, you know, I've seen people use it to get on TV shows or build businesses, certainly people with sexual trauma, working through and understanding, you know, how to move through trauma, uh, have a healthy sex life again. I mean, the possibilities are endless. My favorite is children, working with children. I'm only just, just getting started there, but it's a very exciting endeavor for me because I love to create after school programs. But that basically is my own public, like, unprocessing, unpacking, deconditioning journey that led me to understand how to help others with it. Wow, what a story. (laughs) Um, For those watching on YouTube, it's likely that you did not see my reaction or Jason's reactions because we edit it to focus on the speaker. But behind the scenes, Jason and I are just like, really reacting with large eyes and open mouths. (laughs) And it's It's so fascinating. And one thing that I'm curious about, Mike, lately it feels like there's been a lot of criticism, like a big emphasis on billionaires. And I'm sure that you're seeing it. And I don't know if you've worked with any of these billionaires, but with your experience with with the billionaires you have worked with, you kind of have this inside look into who they are. And I think one of the big criticisms and challenges people have is they see really successful people with lots of money, whereas that, you know, the average person is not in that position. So there's a huge like disconnect. There's perhaps a lot of jealousy or resentment over, well, why does this person get all that success and money? Why do they get to go to space to be very specific in in summer 2021? And why aren't they why aren't they using their money for good? And I'm 
really curious about your perspective, especially because a lot of your story is about transitioning into a deeper connection with yourself. And I think often our definition of like doing something for good is about like doing something for a greater purpose. And what it seems like a lot of people are yearning for is for people that have a lot of money and power to not present themselves as greedy and self-centered, but to do things that are part of the bigger picture of life. And I'm really fascinated if you have a perspective on this, Mike, based on your inside knowledge and experience with people like that. This is a really big and partially controversial topic. You know, there's a reason I don't do the work that I used to do in some ways. You know, I think that people are people and money can just uh, augment or amplify anything going on, you know, for you. I won't say that everybody is the most enlightened uh, person. And, you know, a lot of people, people get so surprised by this one, but um, billionaires have a lot of insecurities, just like any human being, right? So like, it's not necessarily like every human is out here trying to figure out our stuff and doing our own work. And like, we're all just human beings. And so I would say that, you know, I would love to see people who have more than enough really giving back and contributing and making this world a better place or a more equitable place, because I think that's something we're all really hoping to look for right now in time. You know, I don't know that I thought I would be able to have the impact I did in those areas. Now, granted, I got to have a lot of impact in the spaces of education and healthcare, which are spaces I really cared about at the time and still care about. My husband works in healthcare and I'm behind the scenes doing a lot of stuff in his department um, because it's really fun for me. But, you know, yes, I would say that I would love people to be doing more. And I think it's, it's tough. I mean, I... I highly doubt any of those people are listening to this interview or listening to my stance right now, unfortunately. But I will say that this deification of billionaires or celebrities in general, I've worked with a number of celebrities, is really strange to me because humans are just humans. And it sucks that some of these decisions have direct impact on our lives, especially politicians. But, you know, I will tell you, I've never, ever worked intimately, especially mapping someone's sensitivities through sacred branding with anyone who presents publicly the same way they are privately ever, whether they're famous, billionaire, not famous, whoever they are. I've never worked with anyone who feels that they're publicly the exact same person they are privately. Whoa. Why do you think that is? People are people, right? I mean, we are so, you know... It's interesting. A lot of times people will assume that it's easier for someone who's wealthy and public to, you know, work with me or figure some of this stuff out, figure out purpose. And in my experience, it's actually harder. It's the exact opposite. Because here's the thing. If you've ever been validated for something that isn't inherently who you are, that creates basically I'm not good enough, right? So like if I am successful because I have to put on an image and I amplify that by a billion dollars or by billions of views on me, I'm going to, on some level, think I'm not good enough, but this character, this image is. And counterintuitively, you become less confident the more successful that you are. And I know that doesn't seem like it makes sense, but if we stop and think about it, it's like, oh yeah, that does make sense because who I naturally is. You know, there's that famous line, I think it's Rita Hayworth, who says, you know, men are disappointed because they go to bed with Rita Hayworth, but they wake up with me. 
And it's this, right? Like it really captures this thought process of this is just a human with insecurities and fears and concerns. And like, I'm not saying to let people off the hook when they are harming the planet or harming lives. That's not what I'm saying at all. But, you know, I think this, I see on Instagram, this like, you know, this tech person is a God or this, you know, like nobody, we're humans. Nobody out here is a God or maybe paradoxically, we are all gods, right? But like not none of this, you know, singular deification of a person. And so I think it's really interesting to me. And I'm actually fascinated by objectification. I'm fascinated by people who the world sees one way when their reality is very different. And that's most of us. This is fascinating on so many levels, Mike, because I 100%, first of all, agree with you with the strangeness of putting other human beings on a pedestal and worshiping them and being obsessed with their lives and, you know, the entire industries that are completely focused on following these people and the paparazzi. We actually had an amazing guest previously on the podcast called Owen Beany, who was a very successful owner of a paparazzi media corporation. And, and, you know, one of his philosophies, which I thought was interesting and no one ever had phrased it, or I had never heard someone phrase it this way, was we were discussing, um, a lot of the celebrity suicides and the mental health issues that more and more athletes, musicians, and celebrities, I think it's wonderful that more famous and influential people are talking about not only their health challenges and relationship challenges, but their mental health struggles. I think it's wonderful that that's more public now. But you know, his framework around it was basically like, when you have a dream in life, and you not only achieve that dream, but you even exceed it financially, fame-wise, career success, all of those things, that at a certain point, there, there, there's nothing else you want. And he said they lack hope. And when you lack hope, and you've had this idea that getting all of these external things will fulfill you and define you and make you happy, and then you realize none of those things do, it can be a very hopeless feeling for a lot of people. And I thought that was interesting that he phrased it that way. I think I think a lot of us though who aren't in that category of celebrity I can absolutely relate to that feeling of having big big dreams having some of them come true in my life and being on the other side of it and going like wow this isn't what I thought it would feel like this this hasn't really changed my life or changed me cuz I didn't think I was enough if I just got that thing and got that TV show and did the thing I would finally feel like the success I've wanted to be, but not feeling that way at all. We have a mutual acquaintance, Whitney and I, who, who just recently hit the New York Times bestseller list. And he had emailed me and he said, Mike, he said, yeah, it was, it was cool like getting a New York Times bestselling book. But to be honest with you, my life has not changed at all. But I think that goes against the illusion. Like we go back to what you said in the beginning of this sort of toxic capitalist structure that wants us to keep going and work and hustle and grind. But then we do it and we get the proverbial brass ring and we're like, this doesn't feel as good as I thought it was going to feel. I think that can be kind of mentally shattering for a lot of people. Have you observed the same thing with the people you've known and, and have you experienced a, a similar thing? Oh, of course. You know, I think this idea that success is objective, right? Purpose is objective is really toxic. And like we said, this idea that like I can achieve purpose, you know, that's what we're all saying when we say, well, my purpose is to be a life coach, to be a writer, to be a New York Times bestseller, to be whatever. We're saying that it's achievable and that's toxic. And it's also putting all of our eggs in one container. 
That doesn't make sense. Again, the purpose is the essence. It's the water. It's not the mason jar. And so, you know, for me, like, I think that, right, I had a big book launch party and media was there. And you would think this is like the time where I feel most successful. No, a Sunday on the couch with my dogs, my husband is infinitely more successful feeling than that one moment of my life. And it's recognizing that purpose is the why. Why do I feel this way? What is it about that? I get to be vulnerable. I get to be zany and weird. I get to be aligned with the people I care about. Like understanding what purpose actually is, is so much more meaningful because now we realize it's subjective. I don't care what I achieve. And you know what? I'm going to keep growing. This is the thing about consciousness. It expands. So 10 years ago, what vulnerable meant to me 10 years ago, pretty different than today. Pretty different in another 10 years, I'm sure. No, I didn't lose my old definition of vulnerable. I retained it, but expanded it because I'm learning more about myself and the world around me. That's what purpose is. That's what consciousness is doing, right? And so rather than see as I achieve this and now I'm done and life sucks and I'm hopeless, it's kind of like, oh my God, I have pushed myself to be vulnerable in a different way, a way I never thought I could do before. And I used to think that vulnerable meant I had to, I don't know, post naked naked pictures of myself online which I've done. Now, vulnerable might mean something entirely different. And that's awesome because I'm expanding my understanding of myself and the world around me. And if we want to take it to the most esoteric place, because I am always down to go there. Um, yeah, I love it. Keep it coming. So it's this idea that each of us, we are basically, um, I call souls, differentiated aspects of the universe, right? We are basically just different perspectives of the universe, right? According to what we're sensitive to. So we're sensing or experiencing different aspects of the universe. All three of us can watch the same scene and all see different things based on what we're sensitive to because there's infinite things happening around us all the time. And what is so beautiful about that is that as we grow and expand according to our own sensitivities, We are learning for ourselves and teaching the universe about itself, right? We're teaching each other about the world around us. And this is the huge case for diversity. Because if we keep hearing the same voices over and over again, we're having a very limited, you know, perspective of the world around us. And we're losing infinite wisdom. And we need that wisdom. Because every life, including lives that are not being featured right now, is cultivating wisdom for the universe that we're just not getting. And so we're all dumber for it. And so if we can get more voices, different voices, everybody sharing these voices, looking for what perspectives are we not getting out there, that's how we actually all as a species, as a universe, further ourselves and continue evolving and pushing one another to grow into ourselves. I absolutely love this, Micah, of of thinking that we are the universe expressing through each one of us in different ways. And, and, and in you saying that and you talking about diversity, which is something we absolutely have a container for here on this podcast. We want to hear as many different perspectives, voices, backgrounds, stories, you said desires, kinks, dreams, all of it. I think one of the concerning things as a backdrop of what's happening on planet Earth right now is I think it can feel very divisive in a lot of arenas right now. People's opinion on um, COVID-19 at the time of this recording, people's opinions on to get vaccinated or not get vaccinated, people's opinion on whether to, um, uh, uh, you know, be pro-life or pro-choice, and a lot of the things that are trying to get repealed with with Roe versus Wade right now. Of course, looking at LGBTQ plus and transgender, getting making sure people are are having rights when it comes to healthcare coverage and in partnerships and and the legal protections. I mean, there's so many issues 
I'm not even covering it now. I mean, we can talk about child labor. We can talk about slavery. That there, Sometimes I feel as an empathic, sensitive person, I'm like, oh my God, I signed up for this. <gasps> it can feel very overwhelming as a sensitive being. But with your backdrop of what you said of, of this very beautiful spiritual perspective of each one of our souls being an individual expression of a greater universe, a greater spirit, I wonder if that type of mentality, if people were just to be open to it, if that would allow us to treat each other with more respect, not be so divisive, not try and be right all the time. Because I think that's one of the things that's really tearing the fabric of humanity right now is everyone feels the need. I'm right and you're wrong and fuck you. You need to believe in this. And if you don't believe in this, we're going to you know, literally destroy you or figuratively destroy you online. I guess my question is, how do you think we can start to infuse more of this respect, love, and openness? Because God, I think the world really needs it badly right now. So I don't know that I'll have the answer that you are wanting because my answer is very slow moving. And that is to think about how trauma and subjectivity works. So I, I talk about what I call the widening lens of subjectivity. So basically, like right now, if I've got my arm cut off, I can't worry about your paper cut because I have an, I'm bleeding out. I am in so much pain. My lens of subjectivity is pretty freaking narrow, right? Like I am just worried about this thing. I'm in so much pain. But as I may not be in that pain, like hopefully someone gets me a tourniquet or something goes on and I'm not in this situation, my lens can widen a little bit. I can see a little bit in front of me and widen more and widen more. And what I want is a 360 view, right? That's what we call enlightenment. I want to be able to see all things and experience all things. So right now we have a lot of people who are it's impossible for them to see others' perspectives because they are suffering and they are in their own situation so severely that they cannot see beyond that lens of subjectivity. And so what we need to do is, as a society, look around and see how can we alleviate suffering the most? How can I, like, I think this all the time when I vote, I don't vote for myself. I look around and saying, who will not be okay based on the vote and vote for those people because that's what I need to do as a society and as a world. But I've also done a lot of self-work. I have some privileges. And so I'm able to do some of that. And so what we want to do is widen that lens of subjectivity. That's why I do the work I do every day. Yeah, sometimes, you know, actors or business people think I'm just helping them with their business. And that's fine. I am doing those things. But I am also helping you to understand your own subjectivity and so that you can expand that so that we can all be there for other people and see other perspectives and support one another. Shifting gears, Mike, because I, I, I don't want to let this off the hook because it's been similarly kind of hanging out in my subconscious to want to ask. Prior to our recording, when we were getting to know you, you said, I have the greatest engagement story ever. And so before we get to the finish line of this episode, I want to make sure because you are such a phenomenally engaging storyteller. I want to know about this all time great engagement story. OK, because you've been teasing this beautiful man, Garrett, and your wonderful relationship and this lifetime story turned into a musical that we're going to see. But I feel like this engagement story is a huge part and, and we need to hear about it. This is quite a story. So I'll keep it as brief as I can today. But basically, I knew that day I was at that North End party that I was going to marry this guy. I just had to marry him. And so, you know, it took me a long time because I was just starting my own business. I couldn't hide thousands and thousands of dollars and not seem stressed out about money, right? And I wanted this to be a surprise. And I knew the exact pot spot I wanted to propose. And it was on the Amalfi Coast in Italy the first time he saw the Mediterranean because he had never seen the Mediterranean before. And I said, I've got to propose to him right there. 
Now, I couldn't hide this money, like I said, so it took me four years to do, but I finally saved up enough money and I said, hey, Garrett, why don't you take a week off of work? We're just going to do something small. I'll take it off in like four months. And so he was like, okay. And I knew this had to be a big surprise. And so all you know, leading up to it, I went down to his parents. His parents are divorced, but I went to where they live. I actually stayed with his ex-girlfriend, who include her. I asked for their blessing, but pretended I was at a yoga retreat, which was really hard to lie my way out of because I knew he would check flight tracker. But long story short, I got there. So the day of is coming. I knew where he kept his passport. I was so excited. He was going to work. We were going to hit the road and get to the airport by the time he got home. And he said, oh, I have to bring my passport to work. Now, who in there, whoever needs their passport ever? But he was teaching a class at a university and needed his passport for tax reasons. The one day in his entire life he needs his passport. I was like, oh my God, he's going to have it on him. Okay. All right. We'll make this work. So the whole time I'm not telling him if we're flying or driving, I said, pack for both, but I wouldn't put a knife in your carry-on, you know? And uh, it wasn't going to be very warm in Italy that week. And so I said, we're not going far, pack like you would around here. And he said, okay, but the one thing you have to tell me is, will I need my passport? Because I don't want to bring it and then lose it. And I thought, shit, Mike, you've just got to commit at this point. You've just got to make a decision. So I said, no, no, you know what? Don't bring it. I don't want you to lose it. Why don't you go pack the car? I'll be down in a minute. I sprinted into the bedroom, grabbed the passport, zipped it up as he was coming up the stairs. And I said, oh, not that car. I mean, the Uber I just ordered. And so we got into an Uber and I put in the location we were going to so I didn't have to tell the driver in front of him. Now, if you can't tell by the end of this interview, I am psychotic. So I could not get dropped off at Terminal E, which those Bostonians here know is international because he would know we're going international. I had to get dropped off at Terminal C and I studied the blueprint of the airport and there's a passageway from C to E so I could walk this. So I said, perfect. And C is JetBlue. We fly JetBlue a lot. So we get dropped off over there. I go over to the kiosk and I said, oh, shit, shit, shit. He's like, what is it? What'd you forget? I said, shit, can you just hold this? And I gave him his passport. He said, why would you bring your passport? You told me not to bring mine. Wait, this is my passport. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you hold this? And I gave him three books on Rome. And he said, what's going on here? I said, when you get up tomorrow morning, you'll be in Rome. We're getting on a plane to Rome tonight. He's like, what are you, what are you talking about? I said, come on, let's walk through this passageway. We're going to the uh, plane. And so Garrett's mom, God bless her, is one of the worst liars you have ever met. And so I had to call her and say, listen, Cheryl, we got to work hard on this one. He's going to call you and say, Mike is taking me to Italy. You have to pretend you know about that, but not the engagement. So there's like layers to this lie. You can do this. So he calls her. She does great. We get on the plane. And I said, Garrett, we can do the local thing. We can do the touristy thing. This is your trip. You do whatever you want. You plan it. So he plans out this beautiful trip. We land in Rome, we've got three and a half days in Rome, and then we're going to do the other three and a half days in Amalfi. And so I told him, you have three and a half days, do whatever you want. We have three beautiful days. Now, it is supposed to rain every single day that we are there, but it didn't. It was beautiful. And so I thought, oh, thank God, it's okay. And then we're getting to Amalfi and it's going to be sunny, so we're good. But we brought our raincoat and our umbrella everywhere we went. It was really annoying to carry because we didn't need it. So on the Saturday that we were leaving for the Amalfi Coast, he said, the one thing I want to do before I leave, I'll just kick myself. I cannot leave Rome without going to the Vatican. And I thought, okay, on a Saturday, great. We're going to try this. It's going to be a disaster, but let's just get over there because we cannot miss this train. We have to catch that at 2 p.m. because 
it's the last train down there. We have nowhere to stay here. We have somewhere to stay there. Long story short, it'll be like thousands of dollars we lose. We cannot miss this train, right? I cannot afford this. So he said, okay, okay, we're going to get in line for the Vatican. We'll be fine. We get over there, we get in line, and they tell us it's about a two-hour wait. And I said, no, no, they're so overdramatic. They're lying. It's never going to be that bad. So, okay, okay. So we get in this line. We don't bring our raincoats because, thank God, it's not raining this one day. The forecast is supposed to be beautiful. It starts downpouring. We are now sitting there just completely soaked. Garrett has this fancy camera. He has to buy a 10-euro poncho just to wrap around the camera case because it's getting wet. I am drenched, and now I have to pee. And I have to pee really bad. And like I'm just like, oh, my God, oh, my God. I can't get out of this line because I cannot miss this. But I have to pee. And Garrett's getting hungry. And we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting some more, we're waiting some more. Finally, it's been two and a half hours. We are three people from the front of the line. And Garrett says, it's not worth spending like 30 euro each to go in there for 10 minutes. We don't have time. Let's get out of line. So after two and a half hours of just standing in the rain, we leave the line. I said, okay, fine. Let's just salvage this day. Let's go over, grab something to eat, pee quickly, get our bags, and just get over to the train. So I go over, I, you know, am begging people to let me in. Nobody is open till one, it's 1245. Nobody will let me in even to pee. So we can't eat, we can't pee anywhere. I said, fine, screw it. I think we can eat at the train station. Let's just go grab our bags. So we rush over to the Metro to take back to our hotel and people are standing outside in the rain. So I asked them in Italian, what's going on here? And they said, oh, this is a delay between three stops. The only stops we needed. So I said, oh my God, we have to walk home. Speed walk home at this point. So we've got our little map that is now disintegrating in the rain. We are trying to read street signs etched in Roman letters into the buildings that like, you know, is pouring rain. I can't see. Long story short, the bridge we wanted went one way. The bridge we took went a different way. We are now further away from our hotel in Rome. I have to pee so badly and there's no alleys. So I can't pee anywhere. Hungry has turned to hangry for Garrett, and we start bickering, and I am just like, fuck this. I'm not proposing. I have spent four years planning this. I have spent thousands of dollars, and this is not it. This is just not going to be the day that I am proposing. And so before I left, a friend of mine who's Hindu um, sent me a prayer for Ganesha. For some reason, she said, I really want you to pray to the Hindu god Ganesha. So okay, didn't think much of it, did the prayer she asked me to. I'm sitting here in Rome, so pissed off. And I look up and there's a mural of Ganesha in the middle of Rome. I'm kind of like, okay, place her in obstacle of removal. I mean, place her in removal of obstacles, something here. So long story short, I remember one piazza, Garrett remembers another. We find our way back to the hotel. We grab our bags. We go down to the metro station. We're going to take it over to the train station. I go through the turnstile. We had weekly passes. Garrett goes to go through and he says, oh, shit. It was in my front pocket. It's now disintegrated from the rain. I said, oh my God, it's Saturday at one of the busiest train stations in Rome. Nobody's helping an American. So I have to, I can't get back through the turnstile. I have to yell how to get the machine into English and try to get you to buy another ticket. So I'm yelling to him. He finally figures it out. He puts it in. The ticket doesn't work. I'm like, Garrett, we have like one more shot at this. We don't have time. He goes, he gets another one. It finally works. We take the metro over to Roma Damini, which is main train station in Italy, right? So you've got 40 trains going at any given time. This is a busy train station. We have five minutes till our train is leaving. So we couldn't eat, but it doesn't matter. I'll grab a power bar and at least we can get there. So I said, Garrett, here's where we'll set a platform. You look for it. I'm going to go make sure what we printed out is enough or if I have to exchange it for a physical ticket. 
I go over, I come back, Garrett's panicking. There's two minutes until this train leaves and it does not say anything. It is not posted. So I'm like, oh my God, Garrett, we are just going to go through security, run up and down all 40 trains and hope we can find our train in time. That's what we've got to do at this point. So we go, we run up and down all 40 trains. We cannot find the train. We are freaking out. I run over to an attendant and I said, please call this in. What track number is it? And he calls it in and says, oh my God, your train is leaving in less than a minute. Run. So we are drenched. We are sweaty. We have all of our bags to be in Italy the entire week. And we are sprinting down this platform trying to get to this train in time. And all I can think is like, we can't miss this. This is like a thousand dollar train. I feel like I'm on the amazing race. I cannot miss this moment. And so I kid you not, I wish I were exaggerating this part. We jump up onto the train and within 10 seconds, the train takes off. We've made it. I am sweating. My heart is racing. I'm hungry. I am tired. And my only thought is, fuck this. I'm not proposing today. I can wait until tomorrow. He'll see the Mediterranean. I don't care. The second time he sees it is good enough for me. And Garrett looks over at me and says, you know, it's so weird for everything that went wrong today. And a lot did. You would have thought we would have turned on each other, but we didn't. We worked together as a team. Isn't that weird? And I thought, well, shit, now I have to propose today. So we take this train, you know, three hours. God knows it's still raining. So I put his watch, because I bought my watch, into my raincoat. We get out. We walk a mile in the rain to our hotel. But at this point, it is on. Like, this is happening. I've got no plan. I have no idea what I'm going to say. But I know I have to propose today. We check into the hotel. We go drop our bags off. And I say, hey, Garrett, want to go check out the rooftop? Who in their right mind would want to check out the rooftop in this rainstorm? I mean, now it's only drizzling, but still. And Garrett was like, I guess. So we go outside. You cannot see the Mediterranean, just barely maybe through the fog. And I say, hey, Garrett, go look at that castle off in the distance. And while he turns around, I'm trying, and of course he can't see it through the fog. I'm trying to think of what I'm going to say. I get down on one knee. And he turns back around. And I said, you know what, Garrett? I won't lie to you. I woke up this morning and I planned on proposing to you. And then everything went to shit. Literally everything that could have went wrong, went wrong. And I thought, fuck this. I'm not proposing to you. This isn't the proposal I want where I'm just swearing and complaining about like the day. Like this, I'm not doing this today. Like everything went wrong. And I thought I have one shot at this. I have one shot. I've spent thousands of dollars and years of planning for this one shot. And I am not wasting it on today. And then when everything did go wrong, we started working together as a team. And I realized I don't just have one shot at this. I have a million shots at this because every day for the rest of my life, I'm just waking up. I'm asking myself if I'm still game to do this. And I'm asking you to love me. Today is just one of those days. So I brought you to the most beautiful place that I know to potentially rival your beauty to ask you, will you marry me? And he said, maybe. No, he said yes. And, um, Uh, I then pulled out of my pocket a picture, a date stamp picture with his mom that said Cheryl approved. And I told him I secretly went down there. Oh, my gosh. Again, your storytelling is so good, Mike. Like, it's such a nice end cap to this episode because I feel like anyone who stays to the end of a podcast episode is really invested as we are. (laughs) So like having that treat of like a great story again with visuals because I've been to Rome and like. I remember, you know, it's an it's an intense city. It's in- amazing, but there's so much going on. It's so confusing, and like just that that 
just everything, all the details. You know, when I was uh, uh, growing up uh, in high school, one of my teachers, uh, my writing teachers just taught us how to infuse details in our storytelling and how powerful it is. And everything you did is just like also explaining why you got a book deal and then became a successful blogger because you're just so great at creating these stories that draw us in. So thank you for doing that here. And, you know, our show has a full transcript so people could actually read the story as well. You know, if you want, you can just take the transcript and turn this into another book, Mike. You have our permission to do that. This is your story. Uh, so for the listener, if you want to go back and listen to that, to read it, it'll be there for you on our show notes at wellevator.com, along with links to Mike, where is your your main website linked? Is that linked to your blog posts? And like, every is that like your hub, Mike, for anything people want to know about you diving deeper into your work? Is that all in one place? It, yep, it's there on my website, or I am just now, like I'm not a social media person by um, habit, but I'm just now getting into Instagram. So you can pull me out of my shell on Instagram at just at Mike Iamelli. And if you are interested in like mapping your own sensitivities and figuring out what those things are, we have a free resource on our website at just MikeIamelli.com slash map, M-A-P. You can just download a worksheet and it's a free 30-minute training and that will just help you not my full, full system, I'll be honest, but it will help you to get a sense of what those sensitivities are for you. Amazing. Well, we're going to link to that to make it super easy so everyone can find you. Again, that's at wellevator.com. W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R is our website, the podcast section. And just scroll down to the bottom and that'll all be there for you so that hopefully you can continue the journey with Mike and everything that lays ahead and at least get notified when the musical comes out. Like, I need to know that. So, Mikey, thank you so much. You shared things that we've really only scratched the surface on, if that, on the show today. So thank you for the storytelling and the wisdom and the resources. And most of all, just thank you for being you and being just so open about your journey. It's it's really been beautiful to witness that here today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been awesome. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.